0: you do you let true green do your lawn care visit truegreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed
1: i'm john dickerson in washington and this week on face the nation turning the page to another chapter in the covid saga as spring turns into summer as we mark the unofficial start of summer there are more signs of life nearing normal America's mood is improving too as the traditions of Memorial Day weekend are back. The head of the CDC, best known these days for her pitches for Americans to vaccinate, tote to the mound in honor of Massachusetts COVID restrictions being lifted. Another familiar face beamed as he opened the stock market last week, celebrating the end of New York restrictions and honoring frontline workers. President Biden's message, pace yourselves, please. But there is sunlight at the end of the tunnel.
2: As more Americans get vaccinated, the days grow brighter and brighter. But let me be clear,
1: we're not done yet. New incentives to get Americans vaccinated are helping.
2: Who would have thunk it? A million bucks for getting a vaccine. But it's working. You've got to get vaccinated for baby doll. That's all there is to it.
1: While the country moves ahead, President Biden has ordered an intelligence investigation into the origins of the coronavirus. We'll ask former FDA Commissioner Dr. Scott Gottlieb why finding the source is so important. And a year after George Floyd's death, we'll talk about efforts to reform police work with Miami Police Chief Art Acevedo. As the CDC issues new guidelines for summer camps, we'll check in with the head of the YMCA of the USA, Kevin Washington. And Tripadvisor CEO Stephen Coffer will give us a look at how the country is inching back into another summer activity, vacationing. Finally, a conversation about a groundbreaking news study that looks at the toll COVID-19 has taken on our mental health, with the CEO of Mental Health America, Paul John Frido It's all ahead on Face the Nation. <laughs> Good morning and welcome to Face the Nation this Memorial Day weekend, where we honor those Americans lost in wars fought to protect our country. Despite the sobering holiday, America's spirit is on the rise. Our senior national correspondent, Mark Strassman, begins our coverage today from Atlanta. The park
2: is out closed. Sure, maybe these partiers in Washington State overdid it overnight, but you can also see why. America's breaking a year-long case of cabin fever. Glad the masks are coming off, and uh, we're going to head up to the lake. Millions more are hitting the road. AAA predicts 37 million of us will travel more than 50 miles from home. That's a 60 percent jump from Memorial Day 2020. On this weekend last year, pandemic gloom darkened every phase of American life. The vaccine was still months away. Masking had become a must for millions. As a crisis... COVID was only worsening. New cases trended up in 29 states. And now, in 41 states, new cases are trending down. More grandkids will get spoiled again because air travel's soaring again. So far this weekend, the TSA has processed more than 3.5 million passengers. Last year, not even 600,000 flyers.
3: It really is a kickoff to a return to travel for so many people
4: across the country.
2: Prices are often higher for gas, rental cars, hotel rooms, vacation house rentals. And with help-wanted signs all over, service may be disappointing. What has improved, and sharply, attitudes.
5: Seeing the smiling faces without those masks is a sight we've all been looking
2: for. Health officials warn COVID is not on vacation. Take New Jersey's beach promotion called Shots at the Shore, Shots of the Vaccine, not tequila. Now we're going to make it possible for beachgoers to simultaneously get some sun. <laughs> Cue the sun, please. And at the same time, their first shot. 11 states have met the country's overall goal. 70% of adults have had at least one shot. With schools letting out, the CDC says summer camps where everyone is fully vaccinated can return to full capacity without masking or physical distancing and with pools opening across the country we're getting a chance to dive into summer atlanta's opening its city pools this weekend for the first time in more than a year there's limited capacity and outside the pool you have to wear a mask but it's one more sign that life is starting to feel normal again john mark strassman thank you Globally, the number of
1: new cases and deaths are also going down, with Europe leading the way with the largest decline last week. But the World Health Organization warns that the pandemic is far from over. Senior foreign correspondent Elizabeth Palmer has more from London.
4: Good morning. Let's start with some good news. Fewer people are now dying in the COVID global hotspots, which include India and Brazil. And more than one8 billion vaccine doses have been given worldwide. The funeral pyres in India are still burning 24-7. And millions, especially in rural areas, haven't got anywhere near adequate health care. But the country's infection is declining. It reported the slowest rise last week in a month and a half. In Brazil, as President Bolsonaro, maskless, was mobbed by supporters during a motorcycle convoy through Rio, medical authorities there were wrestling with worrisome new virus variants, including one that may be killing pregnant women at a higher rate as well as their babies. Meanwhile, the investigation ordered by President Biden has refocused attention on the origin of the virus. Did it come from animals, either in nature or in one of China's so-called wet markets, or from Wuhan's Institute of Virology, where research on bat virus mutations took place? The Chinese have refused access to the lab or its records and called the idea that COVID came from a leak there a political conspiracy.
6: (laughs)
7: The United States does not care about facts and truth at all, nor is it interested in serious scientific tracing.
4: But an American intelligence report says three Wuhan lab workers fell ill with COVID-like symptoms back in November 2019, a month before the first confirmed case was reported. So the possibility of a lab leak is under renewed scrutiny, as is the fact that American tax money was actually paying for some of that bat virus research going on in Wuhan. John?
1: Liz Palmer in London. Thank you. We go now to former FDA Commissioner Dr. Scott Gottlieb, who sits on the board of Pfizer and joins us from Westport, Connecticut. He has just finished work on a book that will be out this fall titled Uncontrolled Spread – why COVID-19 crushed us, and how we can defeat the next pandemic. Good morning, Dr. Gottlieb. Good morning. So usually when we're together, we talk about the past and look towards the future. But this week, we've been talking a lot about the past. Why is it that there is now a conversation about how this pandemic started, and why is that important?
5: Well, look, I think the challenge is that the side of the ledger that suggests that this could have come out of a lab has continued to expand. And the side of the ledger that suggests that this could have come from a zoonotic source, come out of nature, really hasn't budged. And if anything, you can argue that that side of the ledger has contracted because we've done an exhaustive search for the so-called intermediate host the animal that could have been a host to this virus before it spread to humans. We have not found such an animal. We've also fully disproven the the market, the food market, that was initially implicated in the original outbreak as the source of the outbreak. And so that side of the ledger probably has shrunken. And China could uh, provide evidence that would be exculpatory here. They could provide the blood samples from those who worked in the lab in Wuhan. They've refused to do that. They could provide the source strains, some of the original strains. They've refused to do that. They could provide access to some of the early samples that we could sequence. They could provide an inventory of what was in the lab, the Wuhan Institute of virology, the lab that has been implicated. In a potential lab leak, they have refused to do that. And we know that that lab was poorly constructed, had poor controls. That was reported at the time that it was first opened. We know the lab was engaging in very high risk research, including infecting transgenic animals, animals with fully human immune systems. We know they were working with SARS like viruses that have never been disclosed before. And now we have new evidence that some lab workers became infected right at the time that this virus was believed to be first introduced. That's been publicly reported. So that side of the ledger has expanded, and I think that's why there is renewed focus on this. In terms of your final question, why this is important, I think if we assess that there is a probability or a possibility that this came out of a lab— it's going to affect how we respond to this. We're going to need to focus on trying to get better controls in this sort of high-risk research going forward and get better controls over these BSL-4, these high-security labs that conduct this research. Incidentally, um, China was not conducting this research in a BSL-4 lab. They were doing it in a lower-security BSL-2 lab. So in terms of looking at this going forward, back to the title of your book, How We
1: Can Defeat the Next Pandemic, your argument is... It's important to know how this started in this case, because there is this specific lab. But there have been also other cases where security has been lax and there have been leaks. And so it's important to figure out what happened here in order to kind of lock the doors tight to keep it from happening again.
5: That's right. These kinds of lab leaks happen all the time, uh, actually. Even here in the United States, we've had mishaps. And in China, the last six known outbreaks of SARS-1 have been out of labs, including the last known outbreak, which was a pretty um, extensive outbreak that China initially wouldn't disclose that it came out of a lab. It was only further, it was only disclosed finally by some journalists who were able to trace that outbreak back to a laboratory. So it's important to understand what the possibility is that this came out of a lab so we could focus more international attention on trying to get better uh, inventories around these labs, what they're doing, better security, make sure they're properly built. We need to also look at public health through the lens of national security. This was an asymmetric harm to the United States. COVID hurt the U.S. a lot more than it hurt many other countries. And that's another thing I talk about in the book, looking at these kinds of risks through the lens of national security, including getting our intelligence services more engaged in this mission. Traditionally, we've we've relied on international conventions and scientists working together, multilateral agreements, to try to assess the risks and try to um, uncover these kinds of outbreaks. I think we also need to get better surveillance in place and use our tools of national security to help engage in that mission as well.
1: If there were an answer to this question, uh, would it help with any way in which we, we are covering and responding to the coronavirus now? In other words, dealing with variants or anything, is there a public health benefit to knowing this at this moment?
5: Not right now. I think what we know about the virus, we already know about the virus. And there's nothing that we're going to learn about the characteristics of the current virus by knowing its origin, quite frankly. We've had enough experience with this virus to fully understand it. I think it it, it informs how we go forward and how we prepare ourselves against these threats in the future and reduce these likelihoods. That's where this becomes very important. And what about in the past? There was discussion of this
1: very early in the uh, response to the pandemic. People thought this might be one of the places it might have come from if we had known for certain, which is a, it's an open question of whether we ever could have known, but if in the early days of the pandemic uh, we had known that it came from this lab, would that have changed in any way the response to the pandemic?
5: I'm not sure it would have affected how we responded to it. Once this became epidemic in China and once it escaped China, it was going to behave the way it behaved. I'm not sure there's things we would have learned or gleaned Um, by knowing that it came out of a lab and perhaps was manipulated or humanized in a lab. We could ascertain that this was pretty humanized by the time it started to spread in humans. Again, I think this is more of a question going forward, and we may never really determine with precision whether or not this came out of a lab. I think what we're likely to end up with is an assessment, um, a probability. Unless we get very lucky and we either find the intermediate host, we find a colony of civet cats or pangolins where this is epidemic and it could have first spilled over into humans, or we have a whistleblower in China or regime change, which we're not going to have, I don't know that we're going to find out with certainty that this came out of a lab. I think we're going to ultimately come up with an assessment and a probability on whether this came out of a lab versus a zoonotic source. And it's going to take some more data to get a better overall assessment in terms of the probability this could have come out of a lab. But we might get that information. Is it your view that the Chinese know the answer to this question? They would know the answer to the question because they would have blood samples from the workers in that lab. And that's the evidence that they haven't made public. If, if, if in fact, um, the blood samples show that a high prevalence of people in that lab— have been exposed to this virus, that's pretty definitive proof that this coursed through that lab. And they would also have the samples from the time that they were first drawn, which was was the time when they had those illnesses. There's no question that when they had an outbreak of an illness in that lab, that they would have done routine blood sampling in that lab. That's just normal um, controls in a lab of that quality. So they would have that information.
1: All right, Dr. Scott Gottlieb, congratulations on finishing the book. Thanks again for being with us as always. And Face the Nation will be right back in a minute with Miami Police Chief Art Acevedo. Stay with us.
2: What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more.
1: There has been an uptick in violent crime in major cities recently, breaking overnight. In Miami-Dade, two people were killed and more than 20 wounded in a mass shooting at a concert at a banquet hall. Art Acevedo is the chief of Miami police. Good morning, chief. Hey, good morning. So I know this uh, shooting was not in your jurisdiction, but can you tell us anything more about what happened last night?
3: Well, I can tell you that's the second shooting in the greater uh, Miami-Dade area. We had our own shooting the night before where seven uh, people were shot and one dead. So that's uh, 30 shot, two dead in the greater uh, Miami area, uh, Metro-Dade area, Miami-Dade area, And uh, it's just an indication of the problem we have with the scourge of gun violence in this country, that we need to do much more at a federal level to stop.
1: You wrote after that shooting on Friday night, uh, you wrote, mass shootings continue to occur on a regular basis across our country, and yet elected officials only talk about the militarization of the police on the left and gun rights on the right. Gun violence is a public health epidemic our nation needs to address. How do you think that public health epidemic, as you call it, should be addressed?
3: Well, first and foremost, uh, they, kind of, they need to come out of their own corners, the left and the right, and come to the middle, which is where most Americans are. We need to have universal background checks. We need to, we need to make uh, burglarizing these uh, licensed uh, gun stores a federal crime with mandatory sentencing. And we need the federal government and both sides to address this issue, because without legislation, without certainty as it relates to holding these criminals accountable, we're never going to get uh, through this summer uh, without much more death and destruction. Not to mention the fact that our criminal court system across this country is absolutely at a standstill. They are not moving cases, thousands of felons running around, and cases languishing three to five, six years before they even go to court. We've got to get our system back, back on track.
1: Is that backlog of cases, which has been a result of the pandemic, is that related to the gun violence or is that just an adjacent issue that you're concerned about?
3: I think that uh, that that backlog started before the uh, pandemic. And, for example, Harris County, where I came from in Houston, there are 60,000 felons running around. Facing charges, almost 2,000 murderers running around, and our criminal justice system is at a standstill. It's time for the president, Congress, and governors to get our court system up and running. It's okay to focus on making policing better, but I assure you, there were there weren't 30 police officer shootings in uh, Metro Dade uh, County this weekend. Uh, the American people deserve greater safety, and it starts with the Presidential Commission. getting our criminal justice system back uh, online and having real consequences for these felons that are carrying these firearms that are not afraid of death, but they are afraid of state prison, and we need to deliver some safety to the American people.
1: You mentioned that you were uh, the chief in in Houston. In Texas, um, legislators approved a bill earlier this week, that allows people to carry handguns in public without a license, background check, or training. The governor is likely to sign that into law. So as the police try to do their job, will that help or hurt the police do their job?
3: Look, there's something that God gave us, and that's common sense. And the common sense tells us that that is ridiculous. Uh, Law enforcement, police chiefs, sheriffs, police labor stood up together and made it real clear we do not support Uh, constitutional carry here in Texas or anywhere in this country. And so most American uh, gun owners don't support constitutional carry. But again, you know, uh, it's a slogan, it appears, if uh, Governor Abbott signs that, that we support the blue. They only support the blue in word. It's now uh, time to support the, the blue, indeed, by vetoing that bill. You're either with law enforcement or you stand with the fringe that believe that everybody should have a firearm, regardless of their character, their capabilities, or their mental capacity so what
1: what does that mean on the police end though, if they're, if guns are being on, the st- on carried
3: in that manner? That means that we will not be able to even question someone as to their intent. That means that we won't be able to take any action until that person draws that firearm, walks into that theater, and decides to shoot. We are better than this. Americans are better than this, and I think it 's time for the the common sense to rule the day instead of the the rhetoric and and the out of touch left and right, uh, and, the, and sadly the rest of us are stuck here in the middle.
1: You are the president of the major cities police association, and that association reported some numbers on crime in the, this year so far: twenty two percent increase in homicides, eight point five percent increase in aggravated assaults. Why
3: is why are those numbers up? Well, it's 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 a, a multi uh, multi reasons. Number one. Uh, we have been dealing with COVID. Number two, our our, uh, American court system has been pretty much shut down. There haven't been jury trials in large numbers in a long time across our country. And number three, we've entered an era in our uh, American psyche where our politicians have forgotten how violent our cities used to be. So we've fallen in love with criminal justice reform. And, for example, in Harris County, uh, you've got uh, Commissioner uh, Rodney Ellis who believes that no one should be held pre-conviction because it's a constitutional right. Well, I've got news for Mr. Ellis. Go talk to the people in Harris County who are being shot, gunned down, the children that are being buried because we're not holding people pre-trial. And uh, the last thing is we have not been taking these criminals to court, uh, putting them through trials. When it's taking three to five years to put people through a trial and they're running free, uh, the, the results are what we're seeing, a tremendous increase in gun violence in this country. And unless we all start speaking up, speaking out and demanding our uh, elected officials take action, we're going to see a lot more bloodshed. And I'm very sad to say that this summer is going to be a long summer for the American people.
1: A year ago, George Floyd was killed. And you said, it makes me worry about the good police officers and it makes me worried about the extended community. A year later, what's your state of worry in the country? and, and, And what's your view on the police reforms that you've seen so far?
3: What's significant? It's significant because uh, the George Floyd Act, uh, it seems that both sides are uh, at a standstill. Uh, the major city chiefs have put together some very thoughtful uh, uh, positions on this, and we're hoping that uh, the members of Congress will uh, take heed and use it as a guiding uh, principles and document. Uh, but my worry, and I think the worry of my colleagues across the country is that as we continue to talk about uh, mm-hmm. uh, defunding the police instead yeah. of, of, instead of uh, uh, making the police better, And investing on good policing, Uh, and on the right we're talking about you know more guns for everybody. Uh, It's going to be a long summer.
1: All right, chief. We've run out of time. We're very grateful for your time. Stay safe. We pause today to take note of the importance of Memorial Day, and to honor the men and women in the military who have died to keep America safe. President Biden is expected to travel to Arlington Cemetery tomorrow to lay a wreath at the tomb of the Unknown Soldier. He spoke on Friday.
2: Every one of these lives lost is a tragedy. An empty seat at the dinner table. A missing voice at the holidays. Every one of them left behind a whole community. Not just one. Whole community. We can never repay that debt. But I promise you this, to all the Gold Star families across the country... We will never, ever, ever, ever forget. Each year, Memorial Day offers us a chance to reflect on the enormity of the sacrifices that generation after generation of Americans has made and the responsibilities that we bear, citizens bear, in return.
1: We thank all who serve or served in the armed forces and honor those who sacrificed and the families they left behind. We'll be right back, but first this programming note. Monday night at 10 Eastern, 9 Central, Gail King will host a CBS News special on the 100th anniversary of the Tulsa Massacre.
0: CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car.
1: As some parents prepare to send their kids off to camp this summer, the CDC revised its COVID guidelines for children, particularly those who have been vaccinated. One of the largest providers of day and overnight camps is the YMCA of the USA. And joining us now from Philadelphia is its president and CEO, Kevin Washington. Good morning, Mr. Washington.
7: Good morning. Glad to be here this morning
1: we're glad to have you so last year summer camps were significantly curtailed as a result of the pandemic now the cdc has come out with this guidance what do things look like this year is is camp back
7: well we know it is uh, and we're hopeful that it will be an exciting summer for young people we know that they experienced significant difficulties over the past year you know with school being uh, virtual isolation away from their friends We're happy with the CDC guidelines that they put forth, and we know that the YMCA of the USA and all of our affiliates will operate camp for fun and safety with all of the CDC guidelines in mind. You know, we learned a lot last year when the pandemic was in place. Some of our camps did run. And because of the partnership we had with the CDC and the American Camping Association, we feel very confident about being able to put forth a summer where kids will have fun, enjoy themselves, have some learnings, meet some new friends, and be engaged in uh, what I would call a summer of fun for our young folks who really, really needed their summer. It will help their emotional, social, and physical activities that they're looking for for this year.
1: As I understand it, there are 10,000 day camps and 230 overnight camps. When the CDC issues this kind of guidelines, how, how easy is it or what's the process for taking that information and, and making sure it's in place and the new guidelines are working for parents who, are attend- who have kids attending that many camps?
7: Well, one of the things we make sure that it's important, as you know, that there are local and health guidelines that are available that the YMC has to work by in each state. You know, we have YMCA's in every state, as you know, and 50 of those states have said, yes, you can open your camp this year, but each of them individually, locally, has restrictions that we have to abide by. So all of our camps are engaged in this work, ensuring that they're providing a safe environment and following local, and state health officials, as well as CDC guidelines, and that's the way that we work this process. Using all of that information to provide the kind of environment where parents can feel comfortable that their kids have a safe environment to do what we do at camp. The, one of the other issues that's extremely important is, as we have the vaccine, vaccine vaccine has rolled out. Uh, as you know, that the emphasis was on teachers child care workers and camp counselors. So a lot of our camp counselors had the opportunity to get a prioritization to get vaccination as part of this process as well, ensuring another level of safety for our kids as they attend camp this summer.
1: And they had access to the to the vaccine, those who work in the camps, but will it be mandatory if somebody is, is uh, teaching in the camps over the summer that they be vaccinated?
7: It has not been mandated, but we know that so many of our camp counselors have taken advantage of the opportunity, but has not been mandated as of yet.
1: And, and why did you decide not to mandate it? Tell me about that process as you thought through it.
7: Well, as a national resource organization, we cannot mandate, and as you know, there's been quite a few issues around that particular area, so we cannot mandate at the national resource. We have to make sure that YMCA's follow, follow state and local guidelines, and many wise are following what school districts are doing in their communities as well as a, as a guide in this process. So we cannot mandate, because each YMCA is an independent organization, 501c3, and have to follow local state health guidelines. And so they are different in every state that, that, uh, in the country. So we cannot mandate that.
1: 30% of the campers uh, attend with some kind of financial aid. How has the pandemic changed that picture in terms of those who need financial aid to enjoy these camps?
7: Great question. For us, access and equity is a key component of who we are. We want to ensure that all kids have the opportunity to attend our camp. So during the pandemic uh, and beyond that, we all make, because we know that kids of color and kids in marginalized communities have been affected disproportionately by COVID-19, we're making extremely ex- strong efforts to ensure that we have the resources available to support them as they come to camp. We ask all families, if they're interested in going to camp, contact your local YMCA camp. Because we do have funds available at, each, at the local level to ensure that we're providing access to those young kids. You know, I know, and many of our kids know, and pa- parents know how transformational a summer camp experience can be. And we want all kids to benefit from that, to provide that kind of opportunity where they can meet new friends, develop new skill sets and become engaged in our lifelong relationships with others so. We want to make that available. Access and equity is a key component of who we are as an organization, and we do all that we can to raise funds to support those families who may not have the ability to afford camp.
1: You talked about the disparities that have been laid bare as a result or highlighted by COVID-19. I was struck by how much the why has adapted um, uh, over the last year and a half, uh, providing emergency meals, taking care of children of first responders, becoming a homeless shelter. How much did the YMCA of the USA have to change and pivot as a result of uh, the pandemic?
7: Great question. You, you highlighted some of the things that we do, but you know, as an organization, we've been around for 170 years. So we've been always able to respond to the needs of our communities. The pandemic was another example of how we were able to pivot, and I say, become what I would call a vital community asset in the communities that we served. Um, 1,400 childcare sites that we put up to ensure that first responders, police officers and others who were on the front line could have a place for their kids to go and be safely engaged in that, as they did their jobs. 1,300 food feeding sites, because we knew we feed kids during the course of the year, but recognize that that need grew bigger with families and other communities. So YMCA stepped up to provide that. All of those things were important and demonstrated that we can be a commu- vital community asset. And as you know, hmm. we lost substantial revenue through this process, but was able to pivot and provide our communities with what they needed from us, and, and we continue to do that on a daily basis. And you'll
1: continue to do that this summer. Camp is back. Kevin Washington, thank you so much for being with us. As more Americans get vaccinated, they're hitting the roads, riding trains, and taking off in planes to get away. For more on how the industry is preparing for a travel surge, we go now to the CEO of TripAdvisor, Stephen Coffer, who joins us from Newton, Massachusetts. Good morning.
8: Uh, good morning to you all.
1: So... Many people remember where they were at the beginning of this pandemic because they had to cancel travel plans. Now, with vaccinations up, what does the picture look like?
8: Uh, Travel is back. If you look at the U.S., this is going to be a really busy season, we see. Uh, Half the people in America want to take a summer vacation domestically. Another quarter want to take an international trip. Uh, And so if you think back to a year ago... It was uh, it was concern. It was cancellations. And those taking trips were going outdoors. Now we have a lot more activity all around the country. And it's not just outdoors. Uh, the, the cities are making a very real comeback.
1: And as you look at what people are looking for, are they um, you mentioned outdoors going back into the cities, which were used to, had high caseloads. Are you noticing behavior changes from what we would have expected in a pre pandemic
8: age? Uh, yes. In fact, we're seeing people interested in taking slightly longer vacations, spending more. 40% of the folks say they're going to be spending more on this vacation. Uh, what are they going to do? They're going to take a longer vacation. They're going to do a few more things on the vacation. Uh, they're still not going internationally as much as they might have in 2019. They're just not sure yet how much is open, especially in Europe. Uh, but we expect that to increase over the course of the summer. And, you know, bottom line, they're getting out and everyone's going somewhere this summer.
1: Can the system handle it? Uh, Airlines, hotels, all of the the, uh, institutions that have been challenged, can they handle this new glut of uh, people wanting to get out there?
8: I think if travelers approach it with some patience, because I think uh, airports will still have a bit of uh, a bit of lines, uh, I think flights will be quite full. I know airlines are ramping up capacity as much as they can, especially domestically. Uh, so, yes, I think everyone's going to be able to have a great summer vacation no matter where they're going.
1: You mentioned the word patience. There have been a number of incidents where people aren't showing any kind of patience at all. Hitting flight attendants to airlines have now decided they're not going to be serving alcohol on flights. What do you make of that?
8: I think there is a tremendous pent-up demand. Of course, we encourage everyone to remember why you're going on vacation, to have a great time, to be relaxed, to visit family and friends, uh, and the minor inconveniences to get there. It's just, just part of the travel. Uh, re- remember why you're going on that vacation.
1: Have you seen you mentioned the minor inconveniences, the people who traveled before the vaccines were available, um, certain places had restrictions in terms of mask wearing, congregating, how many could be in your party? Do you see people making choices based on those kinds of things, which even if they're not in place anymore, were kind of cultural signals? Um, Do you see people making choices based on kind of where they can go in the country and feel free from the, the cultural restrictions that were part of the pandemic?
8: Uh, I'm not so sure on the cultural restrictions versus the pandemic introduced a lot of us to more outdoor activities. And we do see that continuing this summer. I believe I read the national parks still say there are so many of them are booked up for camping uh, throughout the summer. And so as people go out and explore, as they look to have the great time, I mean, on Tripadvisor, we see hotel searches up. We see all the different experiences that you can book on Tripadvisor. Those are really going quite strong. Again, demonstrating that uh, that strong return to travel this summer.
1: Let's uh, talk about a couple of specific kinds of travel. Um, let's start with cruise ships. Those played an important role in the pandemic, obviously. What's the status of the
8: cruise ship industry? Well, uh, as you may know, you can now cruise to Alaska. Uh, There are cruise ships that are going to be uh, uh, coming online, taking cruises. Uh, The cruise industry, uh, if you've taken a cruise, chances are you love taking a cruise. Very, very loyal. People are coming back. Uh, They report uh, quite strong advanced booking. So whether it be a cruise, a flight, or a hotel, if you're looking to go somewhere this summer, better start planning.
1: What about vaccine passports for some of this kind of travel? What should people think about that? And how much are businesses weighing that from a business standpoint?
8: You know, a lot of countries very naturally, now we're talking international travel, very naturally want to make sure that their populations are protected. And many, I believe, will be adopting some form of a a vaccine passport so that travelers from other countries won't have to quarantine. That would ruin any vacation. So... Uh, Get your vaccine if you're in this country and you want to go abroad. That's going to be essentially your passport to landing and getting on with a remarkable trip. We hope that many countries adopt the same type of vaccine passport so it becomes relatively easy, whether you're going to France or Germany or Italy or the U.K., that you'd be able to uh, show the same form of passport and get in easily.
1: I want to ask you about foreign travel in a moment, but I wonder, are any businesses, even in the United States, making business decisions based on the vaccinated. In other words, are they looking at the kinds of people who've been vaccinated and either marketing to them or making a judgment about the kinds of vacations the people who are vaccinated would take versus those who are not?
8: I'm I'm not sure about that, but I have spoken with a number of small businesses that hope that more and more people all around the world will become vaccinated and therefore travel to the U.S. because... The U.S. loves the tourist dollars from all over the world. And to make sure our borders are open, vaccine passport is a great way to come in and not quarantine.
1: In the last 30 seconds, the State Department has level four restrictions on so many foreign countries, almost 80 percent at one point. How do you think that will change and how is that affecting the travel business?
8: Uh, It has been affecting the travel business massively in terms of how many people can take those international trips. We would really appreciate all governments uh, getting together or acting on their own to allow foreigners to come into their country with a vaccination passport or a set of tests, depending on their choice, just to encourage more and more cross-border uh, uh, trips, uh, vacations, and, of course, experiencing the whole world.
1: All right, Stephen coffer thank you so much for being with us. We have to travel to a commercial, and we'll be right back. <laughs> The coronavirus pandemic has fueled a mental health crisis in the United States. And we go now to Paul Gianfredo. He is the president and CEO of Mental Health America. He joins us from Middleton, Connecticut. Good morning. Good morning. I want to today Mental Health America will release survey data uh, that has never been collected in this way before. Can you explain to us why this survey data is so important?
6: Yeah, and on a rainy day here in Connecticut, I hate to be the one dampening the optimistic tone of this show so far, but we don't gather mental health data, mental health impact data in real time. We never really have in the country. And for the most part, we've had to wait a year or two after a crisis has occurred to try to assess the mental health effect. We at Mental Health America, though, have been gathering in real time mental health screening data over the course of the last several years. And the report today focuses on 750,000 health seekers who took a mental health screen with Mental Health America this last year during the course of the pandemic and give us a real-time understanding about how the pandemics affected them.
1: And why is it so important to have a real-time view? And how different is that from normally what we are able to do to collect data on those who are facing mental health challenges?
6: Yeah, if you want to wait for two or three years to figure out what happened before you begin to develop policies, practices, and programs to address those crises, uh, then you don't need real-time data. But if you really want to get acting locally, state, and federally as quickly as you can to address mental health needs or any other needs, you really have to be looking at them in real time.
1: And, you know, in your opening remarks, you talked about a difference between the kind of happy days are here again and the important Unseen in some cases, struggles people have with mental health, but that in a way has been the story of this entire pandemic. There has been the big story about hospitals with patients suffering from COVID 19, but underneath it has been a serious and, and growing uh, series of challenges for people with mental health. So, can you, uh, or serious m- mental health challenges, can you just help us understand the landscape of? what over the last year and a half we've been through as a country and what the what the data tells us about the challenges on the mental health front that we've been facing.
6: Yeah, sure. The, the mental health wave of this pandemic has been like a second wave uh, to the physical health uh, wave of the pandemic. And what we've seen is dramatically increasing numbers of people, particularly young people, 11 to 17-year-olds, Uh, who have been taking mental health screens and have been experiencing mental health problems. One data point, for example, is that more than a third of people across all age groups who come seeking help to Mental Health America have said they're experiencing frequent thoughts of suicide or self-harm more than half the days of the week. That's one third of a health-seeking population. It's more than one half among our kids.
1: And has the has, while, while it's been a second wave and maybe not gotten as much attention, has do you think that because this has been a pandemic that everybody has experienced and and many people have experienced a, a mental health component of it, that we as a country are more, that we recognize mental health challenges to our lives in a way we would not have before?
6: Yeah, I think we're recognizing them more because half of us would have had a diagnosable mental health condition. Um, most typically depression or anxiety over the course of last year, whether or not we're going to do something about that is really the question. It's easy to say that we're now getting more attention, and we are. Policymakers, public officials, uh, community leaders are all focusing more than ever before on the mental health side of this pandemic. But what we're hoping to do with the report that we released today uh, with Lundbeck is to try to take this to the state and local level and give state and local leaders an opportunity to do something with this information for our kids, for our families, and for our communities. And you mentioned
1: do something quickly instead of waiting for the time to lag in which you can't make move quickly. Is there something about technology and the the screening that you've been talking about that actually uh, across the board or in the future will help uh, create programs that assess mental health in real time so that we can get at this instead of having people suffer in silence?
6: Yeah, think about this. We've got 15,000 people each and every day coming and taking a mental health screen at Mental Health America's uh, website. 15,000 people a day telling us what they need and giving us an opportunity to figure out how the trauma is affecting them, how depression is affecting them, what their suicidal thinking is, even serious areas like psychosis. And so the, the key thing is to be able to take advantage of what people are telling us to develop a system of care services and supports that actually answers the needs of people and not just addresses the needs as identified by advocates like me or service providers who have been out there from the beginning, because we need to rebuild this mental health delivery system if we're going to support everybody, including our kids, all the way up to people in my age group. You said that you wrote recently
1: that kids are returning to school broken. What did you mean by that?
6: Yeah, well, think about this. Before the pandemic, even before the pandemic, only about one child in every 30 uh, who would have been, by NIMH definition, uh, in need of mental health services by the time they were 18, were being identified for special education purposes uh, to get those services, even though they were critical to their education. Those kids are coming back to school still without services, but in addition to them, so are the rest of our students. Uh, the children who have been at home for the last year, the children who had their lives ripped from them, the lives that they knew were coming coming back, and in addition to that, our teachers and staff need some support as well. So when we say they're coming back broken, it's not that we can't do something about it. All kids but, need mental health services, and those kids with severe issues need support, as do their teachers, but yeah. the truth is they're not getting it yet.
1: Well, and hopefully after this discussion, they will get more of it. Paul Gianfredo, thank you so much for being with us, and we'll be back in a moment. Before we leave today, we want to thank a longtime member of the Face the Nation family for her service. Pat Coney is retiring from CBS after almost 30 years in the Washington Bureau. Pat served in the Navy during Vietnam, then began her career in journalism at the Army-Navy Times. She worked at NBC before moving to CBS in 1994. Pat kept all of us on our toes here at Face the Nation. That is certainly true of this wayward correspondent. We will miss her and her devotion to the broadcast and to the people behind the cameras, as well as those in front of it. And that laugh of hers, which for so long filled up our hallways. Thank you, Pat. I, along with everyone else here at Face the Nation, wish you a happy retirement. Thank you for watching Face the Nation. Next Sunday, we'll be talking with former Secretary of State Condoleezza Rice. Until then, I'm John Dickerson for Face the Nation. Today's guests were former FDA Commissioner Dr. Scott Gottlieb, Miami Police Chief Art Acevedo, President and CEO of YMCA of the USA Kevin Washington, TripAdvisor CEO Stephen Coffer, and President and CEO of Mental Health America Paul Gianfrito. The executive producer of Face the Nation is Mary Hager. This broadcast was directed by Shelley Schwartz. Face the Nation originates from CBS News in Washington. For more Face the Nation, we're online at facethenation.com. and you can follow Face the Nation and CBS Radio News on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Face the Nation is also rebroadcast on our digital network, CBSN, at 10:30 a.m., 1 p.m., and 4 p.m. Eastern, every Sunday.
0: If you like Face the Nation with Margaret Brennan, you can listen early and ad free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com/survey. Are you ready for an all-new season of Survivor? You better be, because Survivor Forty Six is here, and it's ninety minutes of twists and turns you don't want to miss.